Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, Russia attempts to form a militia in Kherson while evacuating much of its forces from the city. We discuss the warnings of a dirty bomb attack and hear from our senior economics reporter, who's just come back from a reporting trip to Germany to analyse how sanctions and the energy crisis are affecting German industry and support for Ukraine. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Ukraine can win, Ukraine must win, and Ukraine will win. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 24th of October, day 243. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, our senior economics reporter, Aij Nolse, and former British Army colonel and expert on chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear weapons, Hamish de Bratton-Gordon. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hello, David, and hello, everybody. It's been uh, a weekend dominated by phone calls between senior defence ministers, which we'll speak about in a moment. But tactically on the ground, the focus again has been in the Hezon region. So Russia has put out an announcement to all local the men that are left in the city, because, of course, they've been evacuating civilians over the last last few days, trying to get them out of the uh, out, out of the city in the face of the impending Ukrainian assault. But Russia have now said to any uh, any men that are remaining, they're offering them the, quote, opportunity to join a local militia to defend the city in the face of the Ukrainian advance. Now, in the other occupied areas of, of Ukraine, we've seen these these militias being, um, or we've seen people being basically press ganged into these uh, into these groups. So whether or not this opportunity will turn into something a bit more forceful, we, um, I mean, it probably will, but we'll wait to see there. Elsewhere, the um, the the crossing of the Dnipro River, the Antonovsky Bridge is still is still denied to heavy Russian military traffic due to uh, ongoing Ukrainian strikes. So Russia has built a barge bridge and is uh, reinforcing slash bringing people out of Hezon uh, via this barge bridge. This is largely civilian traffic, or as in civilian uh, barges that are being uh, that are being linked together here. The reason being that that. 
the um, previous Russian military attempts to, to create some sort of pontoon bridge have just been, they've been hit by, by Ukrainian fire. And so they're now relying on this barge bridge. So it is at the moment intact, we are told. However, um, uh, sorry, intact and and working. So people that are coming out and reinforcements going in, logistic reinforcements going um, into the uh, into the area of Herzon Oblast that's, that's held by Russia to the, the north and the west of the Dnipro River. And whether that lasts much longer, we will wait uh, to see. Well, just very quickly, um, from your perspective, what do you imagine the military effectiveness of these militia battalions being raised in Hazon might be? I, mean, I guess my question is, is this to some, well, to some extent, uh, is it just to say something good to, to, you know, to their own audience, like we are doing something in the face of the impending assault? But from a military perspective, are, are you expecting these, these, these regiments to be at all effective? Well, I think it's neither of those things personally. I don't think they'll be any, at all militarily effective. Um, I, I don't necessarily think it's Russia saying, oh, look, we're, we are putting more people in there. I think what they're trying to do is take out what's left of any any better equipped, better trained, more experienced fighters, get them, as they should have done weeks ago, quite frankly, in the, in the face of the advance, they should have made the bold decision to, to withdraw and, and, and preserve combat power for another day. So they should have moved the majority of their forces over the river in the last few weeks. We think they moved their headquarters element some time ago, um, entirely milit- militarily uh, sensible, not not always a, a great look, to be perfectly honest. Doesn't do wonders for morale to see your headquarters moving back, especially over a significant geographic and environmental obstacle such as a massive river. Um, but, I mean, they can still... Can still effectively act as a as a commanding headquarters from back there they probably should have done that with the majority of their fighters we hear that because um Hezon city is obviously the, the the city the capital city of Hezon oblast and it was the first uh, city taken in the in the war since february the 24th anyway um that putin personally was was directing that it should still be held and um, what it did what that did was trap a um, a, a fairly sizable force, we think five, six, seven thousand ish Russian soldiers uh, north and west of the Dnipro, um, the right bank of the Dnipro, as it's referred to. Um, we talk about rivers in terms of the, the direction they flow. So Dnipro flows from the north down into the Black Sea. So the right bank of the river is the area north and west um, where Russian forces managed to cross. Um, but it, it tied down a huge number of fighters. And um, you've got, there's an interview of Pravda today. Um, that Ukraine's head of military intelligence was saying that, that if they're not careful, or in all likelihood, they're, they're about to experience what Ukraine experienced at Mariupol, having a large number of people um, sealed off in a city and just, and just slowly, slowly worn down until, until they have to, um, have to surrender, basically. Now, he's, he was saying, the, the head of military intelligence was saying that Russia might, might try to blow the dam. He said it's not completely covered in mines, but um, there, there are some mines on the on the Nova um, Kukovda Dam, about 40 k's east of the city. Um, but if that were to go, it would cause a huge environmental disaster. It might, it might then allow Russia to get more people out in good order or less bad order. Um, and it would slow the Ukrainian advance, he said. He admitted that, but he said only for, for a few weeks, though. Um, but I think, what back to your original point, what they're trying to do here is try and get what's left of their experienced troops out and, and put numbers back in, put, put poorly poorly trained and equipped numbers in just in some in some sort of shoddy attempt to try and hold the ground but i just simply don't think that's um, that's feasible 
Thanks, Dom. Just one more question from me before we go on to talking about these uh, dirty bomb threats. Uh, there's been some suggestion over the weekend that the Ukrainian air defence is getting more, getting better, getting more effective at shooting down the Iranian Shahid drones. Um, could you just talk to us briefly about that? Yeah, this, this analysis came from today's uh, UK Defence Intelligence note. It was saying that that Ukrainian air defence, and it sort of echoes echoes comments that President Zelensky said last night. And um, so the note from UKDI was saying is saying that um, that Ukraine is getting much better at shooting down these the drones, the Shahid one three six, which Russia seems to have been styling as the Garan two. Um, not sure what the Garan one was, but I'll, I'll have a look around for that. Uh, but basically, they were saying that these things are um, low, slow, and noisy. So um, a, a decent air defence system, or doesn't even have to be that good, are, are quite uh, quite adept at shooting them down. Um, in particular, I think, sorry, President Zelensky said last night that I think 85% of them are being shot down. I think they said 220 have been fired at Ukraine and um, President Zelensky said around about 85% being shot down. But I mean, low, low, slow and noisy is never a good place to be if you're, if you're trying to penetrate an air defence network. Um, in particular, the... The German Gepard system, the 30 mm um, uh, twin 30 mm cannon tracked vehicle, was was singled out for for particular praise. I mean, if you see these things, just have a Google them, have a look online. They just chuck an enormous amount of lead into the air very very quickly. So um, they're they're laid on by a radar, and then these twin barrels just open up. And uh, yeah, anything that's low, low, slow, and noisy is uh, is not going to uh, survive long uh, in the face of that. Now, they, they went on to make the point, UK Defence Intelligence went on to make the point that the reason these are being used more extensively, um, including with uh, Iranian personnel, military personnel in Crimea, and we think also in Belarus training and um, probably doing the engineering support as well for these things, is because Russia's running out of out of um, precision-guided munitions. They're running out of um, short-range ballistic munitions like the Iskander and the KH-101. They're running out of um, precision-guided weapons, so they're having to rely on these on these drones, which are coming into uh, being being sort of in, uh, referred to as kamikaze drones because they they are they, they can spot their own target with a camera, and then the the um, operator can guide guide it into into a target. So they are sometimes called one-way drones or uh, or um, detonating drones what have you but kamikaze drones seems to seems to kind of sum it up it's a bit a bit loose language but we all sort of know what we're talking about then um whether or not any more of these are going to be supplied there was a there was a report over the weekend that um uh the israeli air force struck a factory in syria uh, stick with me here at the back israel struck a factory in syria that was supplying um if not all the parts but a significant amount of the parts for these drones um uh, for you, for Iran to Russia. Uh, so yeah, so we'll watch that one with uh, with interest to see if the numbers going into the into the Ukraine theatre uh, actually diminish. Thanks very much for that, Dom. Well, let's come on and talk about this these uh, dirty bomb threats. Dom, can you talk us briefly through the news? Who's been talking to who and what they've been saying? And then I'd like to bring in Hamish to talk to to give us his analysis of what he thinks is happening. Okay, so so very quickly, and, and we'll flesh this out in more detail um, when Hamish comes on. Hamish, great to see you again. Um, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, but basically, a dirty bomb is is not a nuclear weapon. It's a conventional explosive that that has radiological materials, so radioactive dust or pellets, sort of strapped into the the bomb itself. So when the bomb explodes, um, you get you get the explosion, obviously from the bomb, and then you get a whole load of of really nasty stuff that can that can kill people over a, a long period of time, but also 
um, um, put an area out of out of bounds, basically, because it contaminates an area. But we'll we'll deal more with the actual specifics of dirty bombs a bit later. But that's that's for uh, for just for easy shorthand. Um, so over the weekend, the Russia's defence ministry said that Sergei Shoigu, Russia's defence minister, um, spoke personally with the defence ministers of the UK, the US, France, and Turkey saying that he was uh, very concerned that Ukraine were planning to uh, conduct a, an attack using using a, um, uh, well, it was escalating and using a, going to use a dirty bomb and effectively said that it was it was under the direction of the UK and the US that this thing had been had been developed. Now, we have heard this before. So since the since February 24th, Russia has repeatedly made reference to external assistance to Ukraine providing, um, well, they've said nuclear weapons as well, but um, but the technology for, for dirty bombs. Um, so it's not particularly new. What is new, though, is obviously the context it comes in with the, the recent attacks on critical national infrastructure in, in Ukraine and elsewhere. I personally think Russia is responsible for the Nord Stream attack, for example. So the, the point I'm making is that they, they've just been they've just been upping the ante in different areas. They're losing on the battlefield, so they've got to sort of ramp up the politics and uh, and try to uh, and try to sow division in that international in the international community that's supporting Ukraine. Now, Ben Wallace uh, tweeted, or the MOD tweeted very quickly after this, and said that Ben Wallace had, had um, refuted. These allegations said it was a whole, whole load of hogwash and said that um, firstly that Britain was not helping Ukraine develop a dirty bomb and also that, um, that this was going to be this was this was ridiculous and a possible false flag i.e. Russia claiming an attack against them in order that they can retaliate. Um, very swiftly after that, uh, Lloyd Austin, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, uh, spoke with Ben Wallace, the UK's Defense Secretary, um, and we had a joint statement out from the from from Britain, the U.S., and France, from the foreign ministries, saying they quote reject Russia's transparently false allegations, uh, unquote. So th- this comes in relation to so Sergei Shoigu said that there was a, a quite rapidly deteriorating situation, and I think what's happening here is this is just this is Russia's attempt to establish a new baseline for the narrative um, of what's going on. The more they talk about um, things are things are deteriorating, there's, there's escalation. So, well, who's who's escalating? I mean, this is Russia escalating. Um, and the deteriorating situation, I think, is, is not because of any any sort of Western sponsored Ukrainian dirty bomb. I think it's because of actions by Russia. But what they're trying to do is like I say, set a new baseline for the narrative so that it becomes the norm and we're now talking within the context of dirty bombs and Western support and all the rest of it. And we just need to we just need to, to, to refute these that as, as a basis of fact to move forward. Um, they've lost the initiative on the battlefield, Russia has, and I think they are trying to lead the agenda here by coming up with a new idea. They've rattled the, the nuclear sabre often enough they're now trying a new tactic here with with dirty bombs and, and what that might mean or what any response to that might be. Um, and I think they like doing this. They like changing the, the, the angle of attack, if you like, from the narrative, because the, the external supporters, those in the West and elsewhere around the around the world supporting Ukraine, are then reactive to it and reacting to Russia's um, initiative, if, if you like, as in as in momentum rather than brains. Um, so I, I 
I, I don't seem I don't want to downplay it. We'll talk it through in a second with, with Hamish about how how serious these things are and what it means in terms of escalation. But I think it mostly comes from a reaction of of Russia losing on the battlefield. But I, I, I better let Hamish come in at that point. Thank you, thank you, Dom. Hamish, just 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 quickly before we start with your analysis, we've got a question from a listener. Just going back to the definition of dirty. Of, of what a dirty bomb is. Uh, Paul asks, is there a threshold for the size of a, uh, a dirty bomb? Um, what size and what size is required to be significant in government's eyes? Um, David, Don, good afternoon. It's, it's great to be back on the pod. Um, that, that is a really good question to start with. Um, actually, I think, you know, dirty bombs are a bit of an anathema. It, it's all things to, to all people. Um, and probably more in the sort of James Bond and uh, fiction terror books than actual reality. I, I don't know of any successful dirty bomb. You could argue that the polonium attack that killed Litvinenko back in 2006 could be a dirty bomb, polonium, uh, radioactive isotope, uh, radioactive material, if you like. So when it comes to um, thresholds of size... It's, it's a really interesting one. And that's why I, th- I absolutely agree with your assessment, Dom, here, because, um, you know, you would actually need a heck of a lot of radioactive material to have any impact with a dirty bomb. If I just go into a bit of technical detail, um, with producing nuclear power, we use uh, radioactive isotopes, mainly uranium or plutonium, that's enriched to about 20%. There is then a chain reaction required to turn that into heat in order that we can produce um, electricity. In a similar way to a nuclear bomb, again, uh, uh, plutonium, uranium, but highly enriched to about 90, 95 percent. There is then a, a fusion or a fission chain reaction that creates the massive explosion. Now, if you just have um, nuclear isotopes, you know, a bucket full of uranium and you blow it up, you've got some contaminated material that will really go as far as the explosion will allow it. Now, of course, it might well travel on the wind, but to have an impact, you probably need a huge amount of it. Now, I think, um, and I quite agree, this is a classic false flag. You know, at the beginning of the war, we had chemical and biological weapons, false flags. It was also a part of the key uh, of the Russian playbook in Syria, which I saw very closely. Now, most of these false flags never actually materialized into anything. So I do agree that um, the likelihood of, of a dirty bomb as such is pretty unlikely. The only, the only false flag that really happened um, in Syria was the Duma chemical attack in, on the 7th of April 2018, when a few days before the Russians claimed there'd be a chemical attack, and then there was. And, and they tried to frame and still are trying to frame that it was anybody except the Syrian uh, regime, as it were. So we haven't seen um, uh, any false flag attacks materialise. But I, I think what they're really talking about, and it goes back to one of your earlier points about the infrastructure and the power supply, we are potentially talking about Zaporizhia and some of the other nuclear power stations. If you turn them into a sort of improvised nuclear device, a dirty bomb as such, and blew them up or caused them to catch fire, that could really release an, an incredible amount of contamination, radioactive contamination that could fall at the moment, the way the meteorological conditions are going, you know, across Europe. 
Um, lots of people say that Putin wouldn't do this because it would go, go, go over Russia. At the moment, it wouldn't. So that's something that, um, that we need to focus on. So I think that is, is the biggest concern. And at this stage, the thing that we, can, we need to look at. But the dirty bomb itself, again, I, I really don't see it as a viable weapon. And all the talk of false flag and dirty bomb and everything else is, again, what I've been writing about in The Telegraph recently, this unconventional warfare. Um, as Dom says, with the conventional, Russian conventional warfare and forces failing, um, Putin and Shogai and, uh, and Savarkin are trying everything, including suggesting false flags, to try and get themselves back on the front foot. And just before I hand over, the front foot again is something I've been discussing and writing. And the fact that Ben Wallace and the other um, uh, defence ministers have got on the front foot and, you know, on Sunday afternoon issued this statement, I, th I think is good. So I, I see the dirty bomb as a bit of an anathema um, and I, I see it very unlikely to to turn into something, although I am still concerned about the nuclear power stations because, number one, most of the power and lights in Ukraine come from nuclear power. We've already seen a lot of the conventional power stations being hit, the threat of the dam being blown up, and we know that, uh, uh, that, that Putin and other Russian officials have threatened to or, or have suggested that Zaporizhia might catch fire or blow up. Over. So just to try and sum up your arguments, I think you and Dom do agree that this, this, these threats come from a position of desperation, not strength, um, that they're an attempt to stay on the front foot or get back on the front foot in terms of initiative. And uh, however, those, those two things said, there is still significant danger to pieces of energy infrastructure like the nu nuclear power stations, and we should be very concerned about them. I, I would absolutely concur with that. You know, having fighting around nuclear power stations, you know, is just not, not not a good idea. And that might sound very trite, but, you know, they were just never designed. You know, the Geneva Convention is supposed to protect these places. Um, but when you've got somebody and, you know, my, my thesis on unconventional warfare is, you know, when you're unconstrained by morals or scruples, you know, anything is on the table. And uh, a lot of commentators over the last 24 hours see the dirty bomb threat as a way to try and prevent um, the West from escalating uh, to provide more you know, equipment and intelligence. Um, it seems to me a very strange reading of the situation um, because actually, you know, the way I look at it, and you guys might have a different view, you know, it will do absolutely the opposite. Um, the trouble, the challenge with any chemical, biological or nuclear threat, actually the psychological impact is tenors to one, the physical. And we're talking about this, and I'm sure everybody in the UK and across Europe, you know, is a little bit more frightened about the nuclear piece because of the dirty bomb, which they don't really know, you know, what, what it is. Um, you know, I'm saying you don't need to worry too, about, too much about it because actually conventional bombs and bullets are far more but psychologically it's having an impact and we know that the you know the russian disinformation and psychological sort of warfare is is a key part that they throw at this and again you have no morals or scruples you know you'll use any any weapon to frighten and terrify people and to me the key element of unconventional warfare is attacking civilians rather than the military um 
Russia's failed with the military, attack the civilians in this vain hope that, uh, that, that the civilian population will capitulate. But I think what we've seen in Ukraine is actually it strengthens them. The more they get knocked down, the, the stronger they get up. So I think it is, you know, it's a very odd way of going about business. And, uh, you know, we must stay on the front foot in this particular case to make sure you know, the big concern I have is is with Zaporizhia and the other power stations, because if, if they are blown up, then, you know, that is a really serious problem. Just one quick question from me. You mentioned uh, your experience in Syria and how the chemical attack in Duma was preceded by a false flag. To you, what are the similarities in terms of the, the, the Russian playbook from the last few days, talking about false flags, and, and with your experience in Syria? Do you see them as analogous or, or, or just similar? No, I think they are probably analogous um, with looking back to the Syrian playbook. And, and I know we've discussed it before, how, how it is being sort of unfolded again um, in Ukraine. But certainly on the sort of false flag side uh, and particularly with the chemical, you know, to me, um, very much my personal view, you know, the use of chemical weapons by Assad have kept him in power you know, for 10 years. And and that was done on the Russian watch. And that that was done on on Sabahkin's watch, you know, he, he was the, you know, the butcher, you know, General Armageddon was the butcher of Syria and allowed all these sort of things to happen. And when we looked at Duma, Duma was another classic area. The, the, the Russians and the Syrians had been fighting for six years conventionally to try and take Duma. Um, and there was then this talk in, in the Russian and Syrian media about a potential, you know, chemical attack in Duma. And, and the civilian population were under severe pressure, surrounded on all sides by, by the Syrians and the Russians. And that attack, um, you know, killed 40 people, mostly children, injured five or six hundred and actually brought about the collapse of, of Duma. So it was successful. Uh, the same thing happened in a place called Khan Shakun in April 2017. Uh, although not preceded by a false flag, I might say. And of course, the, the major attack in August uh, 2013. So it, um, it had the effect that it was required to do. And I think that is, that is why it's so important to call this out, because these false flags are trying to have an effect, particularly psychologically, and, um, and we must jump on it. And I, I'm sure if, if Ben Wallace and the others hadn't jumped on it yesterday, the Russians would be feeding this particular um, fire today to try and try and get some credence out of it. Um, because, uh, you know, I'm sure we're going to talk about the further situation. But, you know, if Hassan goes, it's, it's not a big step into Crimea, which to me is, is Putin's vital ground. And, and anything that the Russians can do to keep Crimea off, off the table, as it were, and, um, and turn the lights out in Ukraine, and try and keep the international community out, they will do. I just think they've got it wrong. Hamish, can I uh, jump in uh, just just there? I mean, I, I completely agree with you that there's never been a a dirty bomb attack. I'm, I'm pausing because I was about to call it a classic dirty bomb attack, and <laughs> I can't call it classic if there haven't been any. We have seen the use of sarin and chlorine bombs and uh, Novichok, obviously, here in the UK. Um but as in the dirty bomb, I think we are. I think we are agreeing that that they are probably not not that effective. It's the explosion that would cause more casualties than the 
than the radiological dust or any particles that might be scattered? Firstly, you know, do you agree with that? And secondly, if that's the case, from your experience in Syria, do you think if these were to be used, that the population would would quickly um, get used to it is a horrific phrase. But what I mean is they would be they'd be much more concerned about the loss of life just from the sheer explosion and the the the, the mess afterwards and having to leave areas and all the rest of it. That might be that might be less less horrific than the actual the actual blast itself. So I'm wondering these I wonder if these weapons are psychologically important because they've never been used and actually if they were used they're militarily almost insignificant and and we would rapidly get used to it I'm sorry that's appalling you know you the, the world would get would 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 get get used to it and it, they would no longer have the the fear factor that they do at the moment Dom I, you're, you're absolutely right I agree with you 100% I think when you look at the, the history of chemical and uh, attacks and these attacks they actually you know, in the First World War, it killed 0.01% of, of those deaths in the First World War. Exactly the same in Syria. So they are inconsequential in, you know, pure casualty numbers. Uh, I, I remember, in, you know, trying when I was in Syria, trying to convince people not to worry about this. And I remember them saying to me, Hamish, hey, we can hide from bombs and bullets. We can't hide from gas. And that's the sort of, sort of similar with the radiation piece as well. Um, and it's it's an education. Actually, I have ju- we may have discussed it before, but I, I produced an app for people in uh, Ukraine on how to survive chemical and biological attacks. Which, you know, without wanting to to advertise my memoir, we we took the last two chapters of my memoir, turned it into an app, which is now readily available um, across Ukraine. And and only over the weekend and today we've been um, extending that app to include what to do for um, a nuclear or radiological um, incident. You know, there's an all, people, because they don't understand it, and as you say, because it hasn't been used before, it gives that psychological impact. Actually, our app covers about six pages of, of simple to follow activities on what you can do if there is a dirty bomb attack or, or a nuclear accident at somewhere like Zaporizhia, what you can do to prevent becoming a casualty yourself. And the other thing one's trying to do is to make sure that, you know, the Ukrainian emergency services and others have a good sort of system to be able to detect, detect all this stuff. Because, again, without g- going into a lot of technical detail, uh, this stuff moves, in, you know, if you can track it, you can avoid it. And it's not as difficult as it sounds. And actually, you know, with, with Fukushima, an awful lot of the decisions made in the early days to move people around, you know, out of a perceived danger area were actually not required. It's because people couldn't track this stuff and didn't really have the expertise. You know, we do now. So actually, one could mitigate an awful lot of this if it actually happens. And, and that is something that uh, one's trying to do with emergency services uh, and others at the moment. But yeah, it's psychological 10 as to one. Um, main reason for doing pods like this is, is to get that information out there so people have have the information and understanding of these things and hopefully it doesn't terrify them too much because, you know, as you said at the beginning, Tom, you're far more likely to get injured in the explosion or the fire, probably from any radiation that would come from it. 
Thank you very much, Hamish and Dom, for that. Hamish, might, might I suggest you, you tweet about your app so any listeners can go to your profile and see it there. And if anybody's listening to the podcast later, so not on Twitter, uh, it'll be there for the next few days so people can see it and download it if they if they so wish. Can we move... We'll, we'll come back to... I know Dom's got more questions on radiation and dirty bombs, but I'd like to come to Aij. Aij and also our senior um, economics reporter. Um, Aij, on this podcast, we've talked a lot about how sanctions on Russia and Russian repri- economic reprisals to the West is affecting uh, Western economies. You've travelled to Germany, um, to the industrial heartlands in the West recently. Can you tell us where did you go and what did you see? So I travelled to a tiny Bundesland, so a tiny region in Germany on the border of France. Um, it's a region called Saarland. Which, is, um, which has a very high concentration of workers working in the car industry and working in manufacturing. Um, so a lot of steel workers as well. Um, it's a real like industrial place. Um, and it's very interesting to see sort of how the energy crisis, but also changes that were coming before that, sort of broader structural changes, are impacting people's daily lives and their sort of livelihoods. So I um, I went to speak to a politician who's now the finance minister for Saarland. He was the chief economist for Chancellor Olaf Scholz before that. Um, and he's come up with, a, um, with an attempt to solve this conundrum of how do you help these very industrial areas navigate, uh, navigate the energy crisis. Um, and it's, it's quite a sort of un-German approach, if you can say that. So they're going to borrow uh, 3 billion euros and create this transformation fund, um, which will help sort of companies to adapt to a new future where gas isn't as cheap as it has been. Um, and it's about upgrading the infrastructure, and insulating buildings better and so on. Um, I also um, spoke to some workers at a Ford factory. So Ford was the largest employer in the area for for a long time and was is one of the largest employers currently. Um, but they have announced um, in June that they were closing down the factory, which means that around 6,000 people uh, will be without a job. I spoke to some of the workers there about what their experience has been and there was, there was a lot of, of anger. So to some extent, the decision to close the plant sort of came before the full extent of the energy crisis was known. So obviously it's played into it, but the reason it was closing down is because they were moving towards producing electric vehicles, um, which many experts say requires fewer workers so they couldn't keep, they have a plant in Valencia and one in Saint-Louis, which is in Saarland, uh, and they couldn't keep both open. So the one in Germany um, is going to close down within two years. Um, it was very, uh, had quite, it's it quite fascinating to hear from the workers just how big an impact it is. So because the factory has been in the area for, for so long, Everyone has someone in their family or someone they know who's worked there. Um, and it's also an employer that pays like high salaries, good salaries. So it's not jobs that are easy to replace. I spoke to, to one person who said that he, um, a lot of his colleagues have been so angry after they found out that they sold their Ford cars and bought new cars because they felt so betrayed. 
Um, and I think that sort of it points to two things. So one is the challenges from the energy crisis and how Germany is going to have to reorganize its industry around um, higher energy prices. But it also points to the challenges that arise from moving towards net zero. And obviously for the German car industry is very big. What does it mean to move towards producing electric vehicles, for example, and the jobs that will be lost in that or could be lost in that transition? So as you mentioned that a lot of the people that you spoke to, a lot of the workers um, had a lot of anger to um, about what's happening. Who, who was that anger directed at? Was it at the German government and the, the, the chancellor? Or did they talk to you at all about, about their feelings about the, U, the Ukraine war? Who, who, where, where was their concern directed? So I think it was actually more directly at the, at the company for closing down the factory that they felt betrayed, that they'd been loyal to its company um, and they've you know, worked there for generations and now they're going to close it down because it's cheaper to produce the cost somewhere else. So it's not so much really anger directed at the, at the government, but obviously if you have a lot of people who are going to end up being unemployed, eventually those kind of feelings, you'd expect to see that perhaps over a longer period of time. And that's what quite a few experts said as well, that obviously there's also, a, you know, from a policy perspective you're gonna to have to be quite careful that people don't get left behind because then they can fuel these political narratives or create a lot of anger and yeah just sort of staying around around that question um did did the people you spoke to associate what was going on the energy crisis with with the ukraine invasion or or again is it still quite local in their minds like as you said it's it's really about the company or, or did, did you know do, do they do they see it as part of this pan-European uh, crisis? So I think actually it's, it's quite local in their minds. So I tried asking around everywhere I went sort of in terms of what is support for Ukraine like. People's bills are going up, you know, the future is becoming more uncertain. Does this translate into sort of bad feelings about the war? But to be honest, everywhere I went, people still seem very, very supportive of the war efforts. And it's also very noticeable when you're there, you can see Ukraine flags everywhere. At the train stations, they have, you know, little booths set up to help refugees that arrive and so on. So, um, yeah, I didn't didn't get a sense yet that people have sort of turned against the war because of the hardship they're suffering themselves. Um, I did speak to one economist who said that he'd noticed a sort of growing narrative that the sanctions are hurting uh, Germany more than they're hurting Russia. Um, and now that's something people are sort of starting to to say. But I personally didn't really come across that. Or, yeah, That's really interesting. Thank you. Um, so just zooming out slightly from, Sa- from Saarland, what do you think this sort of, as you said, this growing discontentment, but which still hasn't really translated into, well, from what you've, you've seen anyway, into lack of support for the war effort, what do you think this might mean for Chancellor Schultz and the German government? Well, could, could, could we look ahead a little bit? What do you think might be coming down the track? Well, it's, it's hard to say for now. So they've just announced a very large energy package Um to help households and businesses. So I suppose it will depend on how effective that is in shielding consumers and shielding business owners from the impacts of the war. Obviously, Schultz took over from uh, Merkel and 
in December last year. So sort of taking over from Angela Merkel is, was always going to be quite tough. That's a, that's a lot to live up to. And he's he's faced quite a lot of criticism already for being indecisive, for being quite slow at announcing this big energy health package. Um, so there's already mounting criticism. So it'll, it'll definitely be a challenging time ahead. Um, and economic forecasts predict that Germany is about to enter a recession as well, um, which obviously isn't, yeah, isn't great politically for him either. Thanks, Aja. Dom, I know you've got a question. Do you want to come in? Yes, thanks. And hi, it's lovely to have you here. Any chat there, you briefly mentioned Angela Merkel there. I mean, has the light dimmed at all there? There's a lot of chat. Well, not a lot of chat. There's some chat around the the, the, the press here and, and internationally that um, the position Germany got itself into over, over power, gas in particular, from Russia was largely of Merkel's making. Um, and yet she, she, she left on a high. And, and yeah, compared to Schultz, she's still sort of held in high regard, I think. Just wondered if there was any, any view from inside the, con- the country to, to challenge that idea or if she's at all held, held responsible. And secondly, Nord Stream, what, what, is, what are the views of, of Nord Stream and the cancelling of the, of the contract and, then, and also the attack on, on the pipes? Uh, so if, you had, if you'd heard anything on that, I'd be really interested. Uh, so in terms of Angela Merkel, um, I think obviously there has been some cri- criticism on uh, of how reliant Germany is, did make itself on Russian gas and that perhaps that was a bit naive. But in terms of her sort of wider image, I think she's still very highly regarded um, from her time as Chancellor. I think perhaps the, the more pressing question um, at the moment is what will it mean for the future of German industry? Because um, Germany has quite a few very energy intensive uh, industries. And, you know, there's been some talk from some economists about is this the start of the industrialization for Germany? Um, is this, you know, going to kill off great industries and jobs and so on? Um, I did speak to to several economists about that. And the sort of more common view is that it's not necessarily the start of deindustrialization, um, but more so that it's the start of this painful structural transition that's being accelerated a lot. But that there will be some industries, for example, chemicals that are very energy intensive, that will probably move to countries where energy is cheaper and then are unlikely to come back once they've made that move. So in, in that sense, it'll be be permanent. Can I just jump in quickly and, and ask, you mentioned there that Germany has a high concentration of energy-intensive industries. Um, is, is that basically why the, the, the energy crisis is affecting them so much, that other other countries have um, more either more nuclear power or more other forms of energy, whereas Germany is very dependent on Russian gas and also has to support a, a large economy full of energy intensive industries. Is is that is that broadly correct? P- please tell me that's wrong if it is. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I would say that that's correct. So Germany is sort of Europe's manufacturing powerhouse. Um, as a very large uh, industrial sector, very large manufacturing, you know, industries such as car manufacturing, um, chemicals, um, sort of steel and so on. A lot, like all of its key industries are very energy intensive. And whereas perhaps other countries have, you're starting to see 
sort of large influx of tech companies and so on, that sort of digitalization hasn't happened as much in Germany. It's still quite sort of hands-on, um, if that makes sense. And that's why it's so vulnerable to these higher energy prices um, because it's such a large part of its economy and such a part, large part of the value generation that comes from these companies that are so dependent on uh, on energy to produce their products. Um, but it's, it's quite interesting because you can already see that companies have made um, huge efforts to reduce their in energy intake in quite a short amount of time. So I also went to visit the BMW plant in Munich um, and they've already managed to reduce their dependence on, I think they've reduced their ga gas use by 50% ahead of the winter. Um, so this is like a huge plant, it's the largest employer in Munich. Um, they produce a car per minute. So you can imagine how much energy a place like that uses. Um, one of the economists I spoke to as well, who is an advisor to the German government, also highlighted one of their main uh, chemical plants as an example. Um, so it's a plant that uses the same energy as a small country, basically, or many large cities put together. Um, and at the start of the war, um, the CEO of this plant was very sort of pessimistic, saying, you know, without Russian gas, we're not going to be able to survive and so on. But by now, they've managed to re reduce their reliance on gas by half already. So there are some some positive signs as well that companies are adapting. Just one final question for me, if I may. Across all the issues we talked about today, the, the, the politics and, and the war and the impact uh, at home, did you notice any difference in the demographic split between the, sort of the, the, the young and the old, urban, rural? Uh, any um, themes coming through there along the specifically around uh, around the Ukraine issues we've been discussing? Um, I I wouldn't say so, so, to be honest. I think support for, for the war efforts are, are quite universal still. So the area I was in was, was very rural um, and a lot of, you know, workers working in factories and so on. But it felt like it was the same level of support there as, you know, when you walk around Munich, which is obviously a large city. Um so nothing noticeable there, but obviously this this could all change. You know, we, there's a difficult winter ahead, and it's going to impact different parts of society um, very differently. So it'll be it'll be interesting to follow how how that evolves. Thanks, Aisha. Just one final question from me. We have lots of Ukrainian listeners who are eager to know more about uh, how opinion of support for Ukraine is changing in Europe and how events in the war and outside change that. Are you more or less optimistic about Germany's support for Ukraine, having having seen what you've seen? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think I went there expecting to see perhaps some scepticism because it is really hitting people's wallets and it's making their futures more uncertain especially, you know, talking to people who might lose their jobs very soon and so on. Um, but it seemed very universal, like it was, yeah, uh, completely an accepted fact that, you know, this is a war worth fighting. Um, so it seems, seems like support is still very strong from what I came across. 
Well, thank you very much, Aj. Uh, Dom and Hamish, I don't know if you've got anything to add to any of that. And if, and if not, never mind. Dom, I know you had a, f- a final few questions for Hamish. Yeah, if I may, um, just, I'm just interested, Hamish, on the talk over, over the weekend and the, um, and the response to it. So, I mean, if we, if we think, if, we, if we're able to put dirty bombs in a sort of halfway between conventional and nuclear, um, and please tell me if, if, I, if I'm mischaracterising that. Um, and I think, that, I think what Russia's trying to do here is, is just push a new area. So we've, we've yet to work out what our response is to these attacks on critical national infrastructure, um, both Ukraine and the international community. And so the thought of any response, any coherent response to a, a dirty bomb, I just don't think, because we've never had to do it before, we just don't, don't know what, what would happen and the second and third order effects from that. So I just wonder if you, if you had any thoughts on that. And then, I mean, Petraeus, uh, David Petraeus, former, former general, former head of the CIA, he had a really interesting um, uh, brief interview on ABC a couple of days ago, a few days ago. And he was talking about the, the likely response to the use of actual nuclear weapons. If Russia used a nuclear weapon, he was suggesting a massive conventional response by NATO against Russia, against Russian units, against Russian launch sites for the, for the, um, for the nuclear weapons. But, but more broadly, I mean, it, it would be kind of, not his words, but you know, shock and awe writ large, um, deeming that even though this would be NATO directly entering the war, um, this would be a legitimate and proportionate response to the use of nuclear weapons. So kind of somewhere between between those would be would be the, the response to a to a dirty bomb. I just want, wonder if you thought it does fit in there, if there are any precedents about how to think about responding to these things. And, and basically, what, what do you think would happen in the event of a use of a, nu- a dirty bomb? Yeah, that's that's a really good question and a really tricky one, which is, um, I'm sure, part of the reason that the Russians are threatening uh, dirty bombs, because you know, they've never been used before, uh, per se, except perhaps, you know, polonium to, you know, as, a, as an execution tool. So reacting to this sort of thing, I can't imagine that planners in Whitehall or in the Pentagon have been have actually got a few contingency plans, you know, for almost everything else, I'm, I'm sure they do. So the reaction is uh, is going to be a challenge, which is why I think it was good that very quickly um, that there was uh, this condemnation by Ben Wallace and the other defence ministers saying this would be up beyond the pole. And it is. It's, it's in that sort of um, dead ground, if you like. It's not one thing or the other. But again, psychologically, it's a massive thing to most people. I'm sure most people think a dirty bomb is a nuclear explosion. Um, But I explained at the beginning, it it is far from that um, because there's no chain reaction uh, and other bits and pieces. But it again has the effect. It's it's the Russian driving this particular part of the narrative. So but but I think the most uh, the, the most damaging type type of dirty bomb would be um, blowing up a power, nuclear power station, and we know that that is a, a an area that the the Russians are looking at at the moment. Um, you, you you could combine it uh, a tactical or battlefield nuclear weapon dropped on a nuclear power station w- would have a huge impact. And I think when you know I, I quite agree with David Petraeus on what what he's saying um, that you know we we want to. Um, uh, um, avoid nuclear confrontation or or the use of, or use of nuclear weapons by both sides you know at, at absolutely all costs but a overwhelming conventional response and I think that there are 
there are three areas to look at here. First of all, the, the sort of global nuclear war, the Armageddon. I, I just don't, I, I think, you know, I don't think people should worry about that. I don't think that's going to happen. There are too many checks and balances in place. And of course, you know, even Putin knows that's the end. That's all over. Um, so if we discount Armageddon and global nuclear war, we then ratchet down to tactical nuclear weapons, which, you know, the, he, these are still big weapons. These are still 10 kilotons, you know, 10,000 tons of conventional explosive, um, which would have a which is a massive explosion. And of course, the radiation uh, that would ensue from there. Now, Putin ha has interpreted the Soviet and his own doctrine that he can use these to defend Russian territory. And I think a lot of us were concerned when the Annex of four regions, uh, and of course we have Crimea, which is why I think Crimea is so absolutely vital to all of this. I hope that in Biden's talks with Putin over the last few weeks, and also, you know, Wallace talking to Shoigu, he has said any use of tactical nuclear weapons, then we will respond you know, in an overwhelming conventional way. But actually, I think with tactical nuclear weapons, and we did discuss this, I think, a few weeks ago, we will get 24 to 48 hours notice, I believe, because these things need to be moved. They either need to be loaded onto aircraft or the Iskander trucks that carry the missiles will have to move. And I hope we have told the Russians, if you move them to a position where it looks like you're about to fire them, we will take them out conventionally by long-range, precision-guided missiles, cruise missiles, uh, and that sort of thing. When it comes to, if, it, uh, if, if that fails and the Russians do actually use um, a, a tactical nuclear weapon, again, I, I agree with Petraeus that uh, we should have an overwhelming conventional response. And this, again, will be precision-guided uh, weapons, missiles at key sites, key command um, and control places, key military pieces. Uh, and I think NATO has the capacity to um, have an overwhelming conventional response that would really grind the Russian military machine right into the ground. And I, I would like to hear more articulation of that. People are always terribly concerned about you know, there's this balance between terrifying people and reassuring them. Well, you know, we're, we're sort of in a position now where we don't want any misjudgments or miscalculations, which I think, um, you know, head of the UN said, you know, probably a few months ago now about the possibility of use of nuclear weapons. We, we, we don't want any of that. We want to be absolutely clear in Putin's mind that it is the end if he uses a tactical nuclear weapon. And I would also put in there, going back to my first point about dirty weapons, dirty bombs, dirty weapons, that if uh, there is a deliberate attack on nuclear power stations to create you know, massive amounts of contamination, that again would elicit an overwhelming conventional response. So, yeah, really challenging on the dirty bomb piece because um, it is more theatrical than actual in my, you know, without wanting to, to, to demean it as such. Uh, and when it comes to the use of a tactical nuclear weapon, an overwhelming conventional response. But I really think, you know, I, I, I hope that the new prime minister, whoever that might be, will say this very clearly as their first, you know, what, what is their first job? I think I think the Ukraine is the most important thing at the moment, given all the other 
challenges we have. And I hope other Western leaders will do the same. A, a very long rambling answer to your two precise questions, Dom. Well, thank you very much, Hamish, Dom and Aish. We're starting to run out of time, unfortunately. Um, Hamish or Aisha, can I come to either of you first? Just for your final thoughts, what would you like to sum up some of the arguments you've been making, some of the thoughts you've been having, and what would you want our listeners uh, to go away and think about? Um, first of all, we discussed uh, the app that we're doing in Ukraine. Uh, that uh, will be, I have treated the, the chemical piece. Uh, the nuclear piece will be added soon. Um, that will be on Telegram uh, very shortly in Ukrainian and English, and people in the UK might want to have a look at it as well. Uh, and my other final piece, um, I suppose a bit of a bit of an advert, I'm giving the Garrard Lecture at Cambridge University in a few weeks' time on uh, unconventional warfare and a lot of the stuff we've talked at the moment with the BBC's John Simpson as my respondent, and I'll put out details on how you can listen and watch to that. Uh, but thanks very much for having me. Thank you, Hamish. And you, your lecture at Cambridge, is that open to the public or, or will we only be able to watch online? Uh, I think in the moment it'll be streamed. It's a fairly small auditorium, I understand, but I, I will let you know. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, Aish, can I come to you? Yeah, sure. Just very quickly for me. What I would say is that the energy crisis will likely have a huge impact on in industrial areas all across Europe. Um, and I think my biggest takeaway from my trip in Germany was uh, that it will be interesting to sort of monitor how it plays out in a place like Saarland that they're borrowing three billions uh, for an area with only a million people to invest um, and to help sort of counter the long-run changes or long-run challenges from the energy crisis, whereas the energy packages we're seeing often not focus more on the short term. So if, if it is a successful initiative, I suppose it would be interesting from a UK perspective as well, where there's been a lot of talk in the past few years about levelling up um, and where we yet to see as well how the energy crisis will impact our industrial areas. So that's something I'll, I'll be keeping an eye on for sure. Thank you very much, Hamish and Aish. There's some breaking news to bring you listeners. Uh, Penny Mordaunt has withdrawn from the race to become the next Prime Minister. Uh, she's just posted on Twitter. She says, uh, we have now chosen our next Prime Minister. The decision is a historic one and shows once again the diversity and talent of our party. Rishi has my full support. So you heard it first here. Rishi Sunak, it sounds like, will be the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Um, Dom, can I come to you? I don't, and no worries if not. I realise this is all breaking news. And when we step out of the recording booth and back into the newsroom, um, everything's going to kick off quite quickly. But Dom, do you have any, any reaction to that? What does what might that mean uh, for, for listeners? Yeah, I'm uh, so in the studio here, I'm watching the live feed from Parliament. There's no suggestion they're imminently about to come and make the announcement, but we've just seen that tweet from Penny Borden. So she's withdrawn and she's given her full back into to Rishi Sunak and said that he's going to be the next Prime Minister, which I think I, I can't think of any procedural way that that will not now be the case. So um, Rishi Sunak, uh, a Treasury uh, Treasury specialist, uh, former former hedgy, um, and was has been Chancellor for a, for a couple of years now. Um, obviously, rose to prominence over the over the the pandemic and all the lockdowns. He came out with the the furlough scheme, which was considered a success. Uh, we'll ask our grandchildren what they think about that. But um, for now, he, so he had he had a pretty good run of it. Then in the Tory leadership campaign, he sort of fell foul. He was caught a couple of off off guard moments uh, speaking at hustings that he was he was deemed to be a, a little bit sort of um, 
less all-inclusive than you would hope, hope a leader to be. Um, it was also found that his wife had non-DOM status, which I think she's now rescinded. And uh, Rishi Sunak is a green card holder, so um, uh, eligible to to, get to to live in the uh, the US should he should he wish. So, um, but now he's um, yeah he was down and out last month, and now he's going to be prime minister this month. So, not not a bad turnaround. He so so in terms of he's a so treasury specialist, as I said, chancellor. So light on defence, foreign policy, security, and military matters. He said all the right things about Ukraine. Um, we wait to see whether or not he. Uh, or sorry, sorry, I should just tell you then the so the the 1922 committee that's the committee of backbench MPs that sort of run these things for the Conservative Party have just filed into the committee room. They're about to make their about to make their statement. Um, yeah, so Rishi Sunak he is not he's not sort of opined much on military matters before. He was asked over the weekend whether or not he would stick to the commitment made by the well by the Boris Johnson government and uh, and supported by Liz, Liz Truss's brief government of. 3% of UK GDP being spent on defence by 2030, uh, 2.5%, it's about 2.2% at the moment, but 2.5% by 2026, and then 3% by 2030. He did not commit to that. He did not row back from it. Um, the, the current Chancellor has made all sorts of noises about tough decisions to be had. and, and um, that, So that, that's basically it. So Richard, you know, he's, uh, he's yet to commit to the 3% of GDP by 2030, um, he's yet to make any any particularly innovative messages about Ukraine, other than uh, he was back in the party line there. So we'll it will be front and center of his inbox, I have no doubt. So we should should hear something from him later today on this in his in his speech. Um, but what I'll just end on, I just uh, I, I really appreciate all the input we've had today, and I do agree with Hamish's point that it's good that leaders, uh, defense minister level, Russia, UK. US, France, Turkey can speak. They pick the phone up, they speak to each other. That is good. We need these these channels to to stay open. Um, I'm just slightly concerned that these channels have been used quite a lot recently. So so Ben Wallace spoke to Sergei Shoigu, I think a week ago, maybe even less than that. Lloyd Austin um, is uh, had his second phone call with Shoigu since the war started on February 24th, or this phase of the war started on 20, 24th. Second time he spoke in only three days, Lloyd Austin said. So it's good that these channels are being used. I'm just slightly concerned that they're being used more regularly, which which indicates that there might be a level of tension that we don't yet know about. Um, or maybe maybe the UK, US, and the other Five Eyes have seen seen stuff that um, that they needed to bring make immediately obvious to Russia that they'd seen. So I, I, I'm just sort of spitballing that. I'm just slightly concerned at the at the level of interaction, the the, the amount of interaction. Um, and I, I will I will track that over the next uh, the next few days. But I think um, that combined with the the end of the Chinese Party Congress in Beijing, which saw uh, President Xi Jinping sort of you know get another five year five year term, you may remember there was a lot of speculation that, the, that this phase of the war didn't start until February the 24th to allow China to have a have a good Winter Olympics. Um, and once they finish, then off, off we go. So I'm just concerned that the level of rhetoric, the amount of time that these people are speaking to each other, and you've got the Chinese Party Congress finishing yesterday. And um, I can imagine she was saying to Putin, don't rain on my parade, mate, or the Chinese equivalent. So I'm just a bit concerned. I think the next the next sort of 72 hours are going to be quite noticeable. And we should keep an eye out for the for any more very senior interaction between our uh, elected representatives. And whilst I think it's always good that those back channels are open, I think too much of it 
might suggest that, that there is, there's more to be concerned about. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter to make sure you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message, and we're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. To our listeners on YouTube, sometimes there is a bit of a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you do want to hear an episode as soon as it is available, do subscribe to a podcast app, or check the Ukraine The Latest page on the Telegraph website. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Isabel Bujard, and today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Just before you go, listeners, I wanted to tell you about another podcast you might like from our foreign desk here at The Telegraph. It's called How to Be a Dictator by our brilliant China correspondent, Sophia Yan, who you will have heard on Ukraine The Latest quite a few times. Here's a sneak peek. Right now, the whole world is watching China. It's the 20th Party Congress, a twice-in-a-decade political set-piece that reveals the outcome of China's very secretive leadership selection. And there is, of course, only one man in the running. Xi Jinping. This is seismic. After the death of Chairman Mao Zedong, there has been a two-term limit on Chinese leaders. No more. Xi is on the cusp of effectively becoming ruler for life. Understanding him has never been more important. They turned this place into a hell. We're in Beijing. We, we see business people got disappear by the state all the time. I mean, everything is protected and you're under constant watch. But reporting on Xi? Well, that might be my toughest assignment yet. I've come into a bathroom now to try to upload all these files in case on my way out I get stopped and searched and they try to delete these. Despite 10 years in power, he remains a puzzle. One we know very little about beyond official propaganda. Who is he, really? How has he managed to build a cult of personality? What kind of a leader has this made him? And what does that mean for all of us? China under Xi doesn't like these sorts of questions. Don't touch me! But I'm going to try and ask them anyway. I'm Sophia Yan, and this is How to Become a Dictator. Coming soon from The Telegraph. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.